0: Merit Healthcare Advisors is an investment bank with a unique focus on healthcare providers and their businesses. Transaction Healthcare is a podcast focused on addressing questions and concerns at the intersection of healthcare transactions and business. I'm Zach Eisenberg, Vice President at Merit Healthcare Advisors. In this two-part episode of Transaction Healthcare, Matt Searles and Dr. Jay Brzezanski of Merit talk with Rarab Hardaleza, CEO and founder of Partners First Cardiology a physician practice management business specifically designed for cardiologists. In the episode, they discuss the changing environment towards evaluation practices, the trend of consolidations in the industry, and possibilities for alternate payment models. Hope you enjoy today's discussion.
1: Rob and Jay appreciate your time and uh, wanted to get into a discussion of how private equity is viewing the world of consolidation right now i mean we certainly have the investment banker point of view but we have uh a guest who i'll i'll hand it over to in a moment to, to give a little background who has been you know just a a great colleague of ours over the years and we've seen him in you know many successful roles and has done a lot of buying of facilities and has seen over a relatively long uh, period of time uh how it's evolved and, and where it's evolving and so rob did you want to give a little background on yourself
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Um, So my name is Rob Partaleza, and I am the founder and CEO of Partners First Cardiology. And Partners First Cardiology is a cardiology physician practice management business that's focused exclusively on just cardiologists and serving them. It's a fully integrated practice. Uh, It is currently in two states, and we are really taking advantage of changing and evolving regulatory and reimbursement um, uh, environments to support cardiologists who are looking to grow their practices and looking to. Uh, advance their businesses. So um, I've got a long healthcare history and uh, career, and um, primarily with private equity-backed healthcare companies that are distributed and uh, uh, multi-unit provider-based businesses.
3: Till recently, physician practices really weren't worth a lot of money. And I think physicians themselves are a little incredulous about some of the multiples that private equity is willing back companies are willing to pay for them. So I guess just looking at it, can you really just talk about why private equity is willing to pay a much higher multiple than what used to be maybe a year or two, two years earnings for a practice and how you view practices in the future of it?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question, Jay. Um, You know, physician practice management businesses are not new. In fact, you know, you probably know better than I do, given your um, IB background. There are plenty of private equity firms and probably physicians, too, who lost a bunch of money in practice management deals back in the 90s. And I think over the years, both the investors and the physicians have evolved their thinking on number one, how do you value a practice today? And more importantly, how do you align incentives to grow that practice so that all the shareholders benefit from the value created over time in the future? And so I think that there have been some really good examples of where both the physicians and the investors have worked together to build fully integrated practices where all the different stakeholders have benefited from it. And so I think that's where we've gotten a little smarter over the years. And I think that's where, you know, docs and, um, business people together understand the nature of the relationship and how to make it successful going forward. And um, so I think that where in the past there was a misalignment of incentives, in other words, the physicians uh, were looking for last dollar up front and were less concerned about building the practice over time. The investors have really kind of figured out how to create mutual incentives to grow uh, the business going forward and really take advantage of what each different constituency brings to the table. Docs obviously provide a tremendous amount. They are the business and um, where the investors, the private equity firms can come in and put their shoulder to the wheel from analytics to capital to um, uh, targeted acquisitions and organic growth models, they can really kind of move forward to, together to build something that's much more valuable than it is today.
1: and one, uh, we see consolidation role plays in a lot of different uh, surgical subspecialties. And I know I have my own thoughts about it and it, it's actually kind of an exciting area, but uh, cardiology in particular, what are your thoughts there? And uh, you know, happy to happy to add on once you're once you're done.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I I mentioned before how um, really there's a changing regulatory environment and a reimbursement environment that really play to um, the advantage of cardiologists today. So when you look at recent regulatory changes that have allowed and approved uh, when CMS approved codes to be done in an ambulatory surgery center that really opened uh, a a very large pathway for cardiologists to really take advantage of um, a new revenue stream uh, for cases that they're already doing. Moreover, it puts them on the right side of the value creation and the uh, uh, and, and the and really the lopsided healthcare equation that exists today, because there are very few markets in the United States where there is an outpatient, in other words, a high quality, lower cost perhaps alternative for a patient that needs, uh, you know, a diagnostic left heart cath or PCI. And now, you know, and, and it benefits the patients for sure, where they can go in and have their cases done in a much smaller, much more patient-centric uh, environment like an ambulatory surgery center. Um, rather than having to pay the in, inpatient tax, as I like to refer to it, and having to go to a big hospital and find their way around, and which is already pretty scary uh, for some of these patients. Um, to say nothing of their, you know, their medical condition. And so when you look at it, I think today, if you talk to a cardiologist, they'll say, hey, you know, 80% of the cases I do in the hospital are discharged same day, which as you know, Matt, you know, by definition makes them eligible for an outpatient treatment. And so therefore, if you can put them in an ambulatory surgery center, you know, from a value-based care standpoint. You're getting good out, great outcomes, a- equivalent, if not better, than what you'd see in an inpatient side. And it's much more efficient, and it's more, much more cost-effective, uh, both for the patient and for the physician. So now that that's available to the doctors, and it's a designated safe harbor for these cardi- cardiologists, now they have the opportunity to really kind of grow, grow their business in a different direction. And it's a powerful um, sort of wealth creation opportunity for them. And frankly, very few of them have that, and there are very few markets that have that solution. So I think we stand today at the precipice of being able to change how cardiology is delivered in the United States. And so I think that's why you're seeing a tremendous amount of consolidation in the cardiology uh, sector.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, we I agree with all that, and I think it is super early and exciting. You know, and have an avenue finally for cardiologists, vascular surgeons as well. To come out of that environment, uh, and become entrepreneurs again, you know, shift from almost entire, uh, hospital employment because there really was no mechanism for that to, to being able to live in a world where that's, you know, physician driven, physician, uh, centric businesses. And I think that's attractive to docs. I'm not one of those folks that thinks that, uh, the new generation of physician wants to work for hospitals. I, I don't think that's true. I think that there's some portion of them that do, but most don't.
2: Well you know I think it's it's really twofold right so if you're a student in history and you look back at the cardiology uh sector you know back in two thousand eight to two thousand and ten when um you know nuke got cut eighty percent over those two years, you had a lot of doctors as um you know the former head of the you know the a c c said <clears throat> There was a wildebeest like migration into employment for these cardiologists because they really had nowhere else to turn. And if given, you know, that was at a time when 90% of cardiologists were in private practice. Now it's the exact opposite. Now it's 80 some percent, depending on what, you know, uh, measures you look at, but 80 plus percent of cardiologists are affiliated either in academia. Or in a large health system, but a similar like migration um, is occurring in some markets because of hey, there's a chance that they can be more autonomous in private practice. They can make they have uh, their voices heard, and they can govern themselves internally, which I think for many uh, cardiologists is very very important. Uh, They can be more directive of patient care in their own private practice and they're able to monetize a lot of what they're doing uh, and take advantage of that revenue that they're creating to, you know, improve their compensation. So, you know, I I think for all of those reasons, you'll see more and more cardiologists coming out in a private practice. That said – I think you guys have been in healthcare long enough to know, and I think you'll agree, size matters in healthcare. And it's very, very difficult to compete and to continue to grow uh, when you're a small private practice uh, and you're seeing consolidation on the health system side, you're seeing consolidation on the payer side, you're seeing consolidation of primary care and other referral sources. So now you're saying, hey, how do I maintain the autonomy? How do I continue to be able to make decisions on our, my own? How do I continue to be able to drive patient care as I see fit? How do I continue to have a voice? And at the same time, how do I take advantage of access to capital? How do I take exa- advantage of scale? How do I take advantage of market power? So that I do have a level playing field when it comes to payer contracting, when it comes to, you know, contracting of services or equipment or consumables, all of those things, as you, as you think about it from a physician standpoint, those are critically important to being able to continue to grow their practice or or business and do it in a way that can meet the changing and, and very dynamic um sector environment that they're in. Because, you know, cardiology especially, uh, but healthcare more generally, is constantly changing, constantly evolving. Whether it's technology, it's payer changes, whether it's regulatory requirements, all of those things, you know, docs that have been doctors for any length of time will say, you know, that's one thing that is constant is the change. Sure.
3: With growing size, I mean, you touched on it. You initially started out talking about the um, advantages of, you know, growth within the practice by bringing new services in, uh, being able to do outpatient, you know, cath lab type services now you're in your own practice, having more control, bring more revenue to the practice. And then you also talked about growth. And so, when you look at growth, how do you, do you how do you look at that regional growth? And is the ultimate goal to look at alternative payment models?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. Um, I, I ran track in college, and um, my coach used to say, "Look, there's only two ways you can get faster: you can a- increase your, str- your stride length, or you can increase your turnover rate." I think the, the same sort of philosophy can be added to any, you know, physician practice. Uh, you can o- grow organically or you can grow uh, acquisitively. And I think both of those are true here in cardiology. Um, and I'll circle back to your question about alternative payment models. Um, but uh, let me just kind of finish this thought. So a lot of... um I'm going to speak specifically to private practices now in cardiology. Um, And I think this applies generally to, you know, any subspecialty, but um, a lot of cardiologists in private practice today um, are really uh, sort of um, compensating themselves based on, you know, they pay all the bills and then they say, look, we're going to distribute to our shareholders in the form of physician comp of the profits of the, of the practice. And I think that's a pretty you know, consistent model in many of the practices that we've been talking to. And I'm sure the same as with the practices you guys have talked to. Um, and so when you look at it, they say, well, you know, we're bursting at the seams. It's, you know, we, I've got a two week or a month or a two month wait in clinic before I can take a new patient on. I'm, you know, I'm seeing, I'm flat out. And so they say, well, you know, one way to grow our practice is to bring another provider in, whether it be a mid level or it be another doc. But to bring those, you know, those other folks in that are really serving as force multipliers, that requires the doc to take some of that profit that they're paying themselves and pay for and invest in a new doctor to come on board or a new provider to come on board. So, there's um, a little bit of a disincentive for them to grow their practice by bringing another doc on because they're going to have to pay for them whether, you know, until that doc, you know, pays for himself or herself. So that takes, you know, whatever three months, six months, 12 months, whatever that time is before their practice is is up on step and they're paying for themselves. Now, it's an investment up front that pays off later on, but it's, you know, Can the practice, can the physicians take time out enough to, you know, not see patients in clinic, look at their business from a business standpoint and make that tough decision, knowing that it's going to be a bit of a disincentive for them right now to get off the hamster wheel and pay these guys uh, as they get, get up to speed. So that's one way to grow organically. You can also again, look to other ancillaries, whether that's imaging, advanced imaging, PET-CT, or uh, outpatient-based cath lab, or other ways of growing, uh, setting up clinic in an adjacent market, for example. All of those are ways to create organic growth, and they all require an initial investment up front, an investment of time, which means you're not doing your primary business, which is seeing patients and an investment of uh, money, whether that's signing a new lease in an adjacent market to open a new clinic, or it's, you know, taking an impairment to your salary so you can bring on another provider, you know, or it's investing in a piece of equipment. So all of those things, again, require the doctors to come offline from seeing patients. Put on their business hat, do the analytics, do the math, and then make the decision about whether or not they want to make that investment. So, the, you know, those are all ways to grow and they all have uh, some expense to them associated with them. Now I'm going to go back to your question about um, alternative payment models. You know, you ask anybody that's been in healthcare for long enough and they talk, talk about value based care and they talk about all those things that are creative uh, alternative payment models. And it's really asking them to look in their crystal ball and say, you know, when is this going to hit and, you know, take some risk and whether or not you're willing to take risk. Um, I don't know that I have a clear answer. I do know that for in most markets, for most health systems, cardiology is the leading uh, driver of revenue in that hospital system. And so, when you think about it from a payer's perspective, it's important that they have a little bit of leverage. The payers have some leverage to be able to understand, you know, how can we shift some of this and get on the right side of that uh, value equation? And I think uh, an outpatient model is going to be critical to that, Um, and I think – data is going to be critical Critical already uh, also. So what do I mean by that? Um, In any alternative payment model, uh, there are really three critical components that the providers need to be uh, paying attention to. Number one, can can, can you control the site of service, as many sites of service that that patient will have during the lifetime that they're uh, your patient. So in other words, wherever this patient is being treated, whether it be in your clinic or in your imaging center or it's in your cath lab, you being able to control those different sites of service means that you can control the cost in each of those sites of service, which means that you are better able to manage the value in a value-based or you know whether it's risk sharing or uh, you know profit sharing uh, model, whatever um, shared savings model that you uh, you're you're engaged in. This so you know owning the sites of service. Number one, number two, it's being facile with the data. So it's really important to know where you're taking costs and what those costs are and what drives those costs in each of those sites of service. So being very facile with the data and being able to manage that data in such a way that it drives improved productivity in each of those sites. And then the final one is you have to be big enough. In other words, your patient panel needs to be broad enough and sizable enough that from an actuarial basis, you have more well lives than you have sick lives so that you are able to bear the ups and downs of these big costs. Um, and and the, being facile with the data will allow you to know where you're able to take risk and where you're not. So not only will you be able to ca- control costs and manage the costs, but you're able to look and say, hey, man, we're real good at this. We're not so good at this. And so that, that per- puts you in a position where you're able to understand with the payer's where you're willing to take risk. Um, and in the absence of size, controlling your sites of service and having robust uh, data collection and data management, um, it's really hard for providers to be able to, to enter into these alter- alternative payment models and, and consistently uh, be profitable there. And, and those that do it well have some or all of the components that i just talked about
1: and that's an interesting maybe segue to how how you might view a platform right so in some other surgical specialties there's some sturdy platforms in ophthalmology or gi that have created some of the scale they're they're getting there um how do you view that in the context of this early roll-up of you know cardiovascular practices what is a platform and what is not
2: yeah it's funny um some people define the platform as, Hey, who's the first. (laughs) And unfortunately, uh, you know, you and I both know, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Um, uh, Really what defines a platform for us is, do they have uh, the ability and the infrastructure to support growth? Um, And that's growth both rapid and over time. And so, you know, that includes, um, you know, what type of ancillaries do they have and how are they doing? But it also includes what have they consolidated? In other words, are they doing their own revenue cycle management internally or are they outsourcing that? Um, Are they doing, you know, are they, do they have one clinic or do they have 15 clinics across a broad region? Um, And how are they managing those? Um, So, so size is a good indication, or we use that as a proxy uh, for a platform. If you're small and you're insular and you have one clinic in a very sort of um, limited geography, then you're probably not a platform. You may have 100% market share there, but you're probably not a platform, if only because being able to do this across a broad region and get some depth in that region um, re- will require some significant, significant growth and in investment in infrastructure. So that, that's where, that's how we define a platform is where does, th- where does the infrastructure support growth? Um, and so, you know, it, the average size of a cardiology practice in the United States is 10 doctors and probably 80 to 100, um, employees as part of that practice. And you'll see, you know, different shapes and sizes and different, um, uh, sort of permutations of the practice. You know, are they all 10 of them partners or do you have a bunch of employed docs? And so all of those look, you know, so each one we take, um, each practice that we look at has, a, it has its own unique characteristics. There's some things that are pretty consistent across practices, uh, but each is, um, Unique in its own way. And so you have to look at it and say, hey, does that uniquely uh, position them to be a platform? And if so, how and why? But it re- but to answer your question directly, it really is about how much uh, investment is required to create the infrastructure to support growth.
0: And that wraps up another episode of Transaction Healthcare. Hit the subscribe button to get notified when we release new episodes. If you're someone interested in learning more about these topics, visit us at MeritAdvisory.com or send us an email at at meritadvisory.com.